Ecclesiastes chapter 1. All is vanity. The word of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. King in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? Is is this new? It has been already and in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things. Yet to be among those who come after. So far, If you have your Bibles there, leave them open and also stick a finger in chapter 12 because I'm going to flick over to that a little bit later. So here we are in the first part of chapter of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, the first 11 verses, is sort of an introduction to the book and it's a bit grim, isn't it? It's a bit of a dark way to start a Bible book. It's a bit of a dark way to start a sermon even. And this is the first time you've read Ecclesiastes. I encourage you to go home and read the whole book. It's, it's very useful. Um, it gets better as it goes. Um, but it starts dark and it stays dark for a while and gets better towards the end. So I encourage you to read it. And it's been a while, go home and read it as well. It's part of the wisdom literature we find in the Bible along with Psalms and Job and Proverbs and Song of Solomon. But it's different. It has a different shape compared to, say, Old Testament narratives like Kings or Chronicles or the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark and so forth, or Paul's or James or Peter's letters. It has a very different shape. And that's the nature of wisdom literature. But it's in God's word. And Ecclesiastes is actually a great book, and that's why I encourage you to go home and read it. It's a great book for our present culture. It's a great book for the world we live in. Now, we see there in verse 1, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So it's most likely written by King Solomon, who was a son of David, who lived in Jerusalem and was well known for his wisdom. And here he is at the end of his life looking back, and he's writing using the title, the preacher or the teacher. Who is he writing to? Well, the simple answer is he's writing to his people. He's writing to his subjects, the people of Israel. And at that time, it's the high point of of Israel. They're living in a time of wealth and security and prosperity. And here comes Solomon and he says, you know what, it's all just a waste. It's all just nothing. And so he's writing to these people, but he's also writing to people who want to know, is life worth living? 
Solomon pulls apart in this book the meaning of life. He starts to dig deep. And here we have a book that's for people who are jaded and sceptical or weary about life. And it's a book for our time as well. If we're honest, it's a book for us. It's a book for anyone who's ever said, what's the point of it all? Is my life worth living? Is this life worth living? And that's why I encourage you to go home and read it. As I said, starts dark and gets better. But one commentator has said about Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is the kind of a, a backdoor that allows believers to have those sad and sceptical thoughts that we don't usually allow to enter the front door of our faith. And as we read the introduction to the book in these first 11 verses, we see some really blunt realities. It says, life is short, then you die, and no one remembers you. It's pretty grim, as I said. But it's good that we face these things head on. It's good that we face these things and live with them because we have to come to the uh, terms of these things because we know the truth behind them. Sometimes I need a dose of hard medicine from God or you might not like the taste of it, but it's good for us. And so here we're being reminded of the deep fundamentals of reality. And I'm going to start this morning by taking you to the end of the book to show you what I mean. That is why this is good for us. So flick over to chapter, uh, chapter 12. And I just want to read from verses 9 to 11. It says there in verse 9, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. See, here we see words in Ecclesiastes from a teacher and a preacher who shares wisdom and knowledge with these people. And did you note that those words were good? But they weren't just good, they were more than good. They were upright, they were true, they were worth hearing. And they're worth hearing because these words redirect our thinking. They're like a goad. If you don't know what a goad is, in biblical times, shepherds had a staff. And the goad was the pointy bit on the end of the staff. They could prod the sheep back into line. And so that's what these words are. They prod us, they, they poke us, they get us to think, they get us to look at God. And God uses them to get our attention, to pull us back from danger and to guide us in the way he wants us to go. And I think we need that guidance, we need that correction because we live in a culture that so easily distracts us, that throws a, a million things at us every day and says, look at me, look at me, look at me. It says, your feelings are valuable, your wants are valuable, your pride, your self-sufficiency, all these things are important. Live this way, live for self. But Scripture says, don't. Live by God's wisdom. And when we live for self, when we live the way our culture wants, that's not living a wise life. That's not living according to biblical wisdom. And so as we see at the start of verse 1, the teacher has pointy words. And the first thing we see in his pointy words is the preacher's motto in verses 1 to 2. Look at those verses. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And I think you could call this the preacher's motto because that saying and that thought appears again in chapter 12, verse 8. But the word vanity itself appears 35 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So in 12 chapters, it appears 35 times. And it's a bit of a hard word to translate from the original Hebrew. The NIV actually says meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The Christian uh, study Bible uh, actually says absolute futility. Everything is futility. But you get the feeling of it, don't you? It's, 
Everything's a bit of a waste. And the reason it's a hard word to accurately translate and why these translations have gone with different words is the Hebrew word is hevel. And it actually means vapour or breath. Something that doesn't last, something that is very, very temporary. And on the days in Sydney when it's cold enough and you can go outside, or if you're up early enough on a winter's day and you can breathe in the air, sometimes you can see your breath. And I love it. I've loved it ever since I was a kid where you stand. I used to stand at the train station before I worked from home and go, and watch my breath and then look at all the other people thinking, what's wrong with him? But what the, the thing I loved about it was you could see it and it was there and then it was gone. And I could see my breath, but I couldn't capture it. I couldn't grab it. I couldn't bottle it. It was literally gone in seconds. It was a breath. It was a vapour. And verse 2 is saying, maybe we could put it this way, vapour of vapours. All is vapours. It's here and it's gone. That's our life. That's our achievements. That's everything we might think is valuable. But you know what? Like me at the station, I'm too busy staring at it to think about how temporary... It is. And as I said, this is a really blunt way to start a message from God, isn't it? But I want to ask you, do you ever stop and think about your life? Do you ever stop to say, why am I here? What is my purpose on this earth? And the teacher says, you're but a breath. Know this so you can see past yourself. Know this so that you can see past your belief that this will go on forever. I remember when I was 20, my dad turned, when I was 25, my dad turned 50, I thought, he's an old guy. I'm 52 now. He's not that old. You know, he's 77. Yeah, but the thing is, life doesn't go on forever. We know it all ends. The teacher tells us that you're not the most important thing going on in your life. And he wants to point us to something better. And before we get there, the preacher's motto raises a really interesting question for us. And that's in verse 3. What's the point? What's the point of all the things we do? Verse 3 asks the question very bluntly, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Coming after verse 1 and 2, it's a really important question because it says if everything's just a vapour, what's the point? It's repeated throughout the book. Now, what does a man gain? What does a man gain? What does a person gain? And note what it's focused on, what we gain, what we achieve from our striving, what we do in this life under the sun. Now, the teacher is fully aware of the world around him. As we go through this book, and I encourage you to go through it, uh, as you go through it, you'll see that the teacher believes in God. He very much believes in God. This isn't just a, a nice sort of Middle Eastern ancient philosophical question. The teacher believes in God. He talks about God at least 30 times, but he's lived life under the sun. He's looked at life as it's lived under the sun. And the stuff he's talking about is not sort of pie-in-the-sky stuff just out there. It's what this teacher, who we read about in verse, uh, chapter 12, this wise teacher with wise words has seen, what he's heard and what he knows about. And so he asks the question of, chapter, uh, of verse 3. Now, it's a rhetorical question. There's no answer given because you don't need an answer. You know what that answer is going to be. We saw about it in verses 1 and 2. If life is like a vapour and smoke... How much of our efforts mean anything in the long term? And we can trust that answer because we have a wise teacher who has tasted And as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you see he's tasted pleasure, he's tasted wealth, he's tasted success. And as he looks back at the end of his life, he says, it's meaningless. What do you gain? You gain nothing. 
And I tell you this because we live in a culture, as I said earlier, that churns out all sorts of things that you should have. Our culture says you can have it and you can have as much of it as you want. So you can have a great house. You can have cars and the holidays and money. You can achieve it all. You can be successful and powerful and influential and popular and attractive. So all these things are what you should strive for. And you might think, well, that's sort of the big end of town, but it's not really. That stuff is pitched at us here in far western Sydney. It's pitched at us at Blacktown. It's pitched at Christians wherever we live. And it's not just something that's out there. It comes into our homes. If your kids, I have the 20 and 18-year-old, if they have the internet, it's piped directly to their eyeballs, unfiltered, uncensored, with whatever junk goes with that. And so this is stuff we need to worry about and stuff we need to think about. We need to have biblical wisdom. But yet this culture that pipes all this stuff to us also recognises the lie of it all. And here I'm going to show my age a little bit because in the 1960s, the Rolling Stones, who were quite wealthy at the time, sang, I can't get no satisfaction. Some of you may remember that song. In the 1980s, you 2 said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And in the 2000s, well, I don't know, I stopped listening to popular music when my kids were born about 20 years ago, so I don't know what people are singing about nowadays. But I bet you modern music also identifies the need, modern culture, that we're still not getting what we want, that we're still missing out, there's still something missing. We still don't get what we need. You get the point, don't you? We strive, we work, we push. We end up with nothing of lasting value, and then we die. And it's quite humbling, isn't it? It's quite, quite grim. And I wonder, have you stopped to assess your life? Do you think you're going to leave a mark in this world? Do you think your great works will be remembered? Do you think the project you finished or the company you built, the personal go goals you met will endure? Because they won't. In my day job, I'm a journalist, and I used to work for a magazine about 10 years ago. And I was quite surprised one day that they changed their website. They did an update. And I worked for that company twice over a period of about 10 years. And collectively, I did about seven years' work there. And one day, I went to that website. Everything I'd ever written was gone. It was still there, but my name was taken off all the articles. And I was quite surprised. And I thought, everything I'd ever did for that company for seven years was just erased by some coding error or whatever. Was my work remembered? No. Do the people who work there now even remember that I was ever there? No. My entire history of that company is zero. And if that's how easily the world forgets us, what value do you think it's all worth to them? These are hard things for us to hear, aren't they? They're hard things for us to hear when we're trying to gain and succeed and move ahead. That's all just going to be zero. That life is but a breath. So are we here to strive and labour and gain, or is there something better? Is there a wiser way of living? Because I want these verses to be a bit of a challenge. I want us to challenge the way we, we look at life and perhaps pull it apart. And that way we can look inside and see, is there a wiser way of living? Because it says in these first three verses, despite our labour under the sun, we gain nothing. And we see that illustrating the cycle of life in verses 4 to 11. If you've got your Bibles there, have a look at verses four, uh, verse 4 and then verse 11. So verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Verse 4 and 11 aren't repetitive because the teacher's a bit short of words. 
He's just telling us that generations come, generations go, the earth turns, and no one remembers. Just like my old work, no one remembers. I'm forgotten and passed on. When my grandfather died many years ago, about 10 or 12 years ago, he told me on his deathbed he had cancer, sadly, and he died. He said, when I go, I'll be the last person in the world who knew my sister. And he had a sister who died at 12 back in the Netherlands before the Second World War. And he said, I'm the last man on earth who knows my sister, who remembers what she looked like and sounded like. And he says, when I go, I'll be the last one. And that's what Ecclesiastes is talking about. There'll be no remembrance by those who come after. And it's a link back to verse 2, isn't it? Life is a breath. It's a vapour. It's forgotten soon after it appears. And these verses in verse 11, uh, 4 and 11, they're really bookends to this big cycle that we saw in verses 5 to 10. I want to read those to you. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Around and round goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. You see, there's two cycles in there, and I just want to talk about the first one. That cycle in verses 5 to 7, it's, it's almost quite idyllic, isn't it? It's not quite utopian, it's this nice view of nature, the sun rising, the sun setting, the wind blowing, and we know how these things work. We know how streams run to the sea and rivers and ocean and rain, all these things are connected. And it sounds really idyllic, doesn't it? It sounds very pastoral, like a nice utopia. But the teacher leaves something out. There's no people in it. That cycle is devoid of people. It's empty And that cycle doesn't depend on you and me. That cycle turns because that's the way God ordained it. The earth turns, the wind blows, the rain falls, regardless of what you and I actually do. And you think about it, if creation is so repetitive, if those cycles continue, what makes you think you're going to gain anything in your short, breath-like existence? But I sort of point that out because I want to bring you to the cycles in verses 8 and 9. Because those three cycles of creation match verses 8 and 9. The sun, the wind and the sea continue in their cycle and just as they continue, we can't be filled. We can't be filled with our speaking, our seeing, our hearing and what has been done before will be done again. Now if you think about the progress of time and technology and society and culture, you might think, well that's not necessarily true. Now even just look at here today, here I am preaching under electric lights, which are a fairly recent invention. I'm actually preaching to you off an iPad, which is a really recent invention. Some of my clothes are synthetic fibres. I drove here in a car. It's powered by petrol. Things are new. But that's not what the teacher's getting at. He knows that things are invented, and we live in a world where things are made and superseded and replaced all the time, but it's the humans who use it that are the same. Think of technology. Social media is used to bully people. Same bad behaviour. Mobile phones now give us access to whatever we want, particularly whatever we want to buy. They feed our materialism and consumerism. And the internet, for all its positives, has so many negatives, including the explosion of porn and gambling, that it's unbelievable. It's new technology, it's new things, but it's the same sinful behaviour. 
You want to see people angry? Get into a traffic jam on a Saturday afternoon. There's plenty of road rage. It's the same sinful behaviour. We're stuck in these cycles where our lives are short and we lack meaning in this world. And this is pretty bleak. I keep on saying it because it is. Yet we're here represented with these words in this passage. And if you thought, oh man, this is getting pretty dark, Jason, listen up, I want to take you to where all this is going. And if you've come to the conclusion, based on verses 1 to 11, that life is awful, because that's what these verses sound like, stick with me. Because Ecclesiastes is a book about two points of view. One says life is meaningless, futile, but if you're not connected to God. And the other one says that only when life is lived in contact with God, guided by his word, and that's where the book of Ecclesiastes picks up towards the end, and that's why I encourage you to read it. Only when we're guided by God's word is life worth living. The teacher wants to prod us with his staff in verses 1 to 11. He says, stop striving. Stop being invested in this world. See the better, wiser way to live. If you've got your Bibles, go back to you know, chapter 12 with me. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14 there. And I'm sort of giving away the end of the movie here, but it says there, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's it. That's what we've got to do. Now, we've seen there the end of how all things work. God is showing us that this is how he wants us to live. A life with God, where we need to abandon our way of living and live humbly, recognising that God is God above all things. Verse 14 says there's a good reason for that because there's going to be judgment too. For every hidden thing, good or evil, we're going to face it at the end of this life. So however long your life is going to be, you're still going to have to do business with God at the end of it. So the time to live with God and recognise him is now, not at the very end, because then time's up. Once the deadline has passed, you can't go back and redo the work. So let me ask you this question, what life are you living? What life have you chosen for yourself? Ecclesiastes, as you go through it, you know, you'll see in chapter, chapter 2, now, uh, chapter 1, the vanity of wisdom, the vanity of self-indulgence, living wisely, toil. It goes on and on throughout the book where uh, the vanity of wealth and honour, where the teacher sort of says, all these things, I tested them, I tried them, I tasted them, and in the end, I didn't enjoy a single one because they were all meaningless. And so these things, when we accept that they're not worth having, because God says there's an even better life. That's a life worth living. You might say, well, how can you say that, you know? The world's pretty good in some places. Well, we can say that because Jesus has actually shown us a better way. Jesus came into our world and our lives and says, no, the life you think is good is actually garbage in comparison to the life that I offer you. Paul says that, that his entire life, before knowing Jesus, he considered to be refuse, to be garbage, until he came to know Jesus and salvation in him. Why? Because Jesus brings meaning and hope and new life. Jesus goes to the core of the problem we all face, which is we're rebellious people. We're stubborn people. And in our rebellion and stubbornness, we're cut off from God and deserving of God's judgment and anger. And the other core problem we all have is that we need someone to deal with that. And Jesus says, I will. I will deal with that. I will come into your world. I will die the death you deserve and give you the freedom that you don't deserve 
and the love you don't deserve so you can be with the Father, you can be in eternal relationship with him through my own death and my resurrection. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 58 puts it this way. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Friends, life may be a small vapour of time, but you can live it well. You can live not just this life well, but live in the hope of an even better life for eternity. Because on the cross, Jesus took the judgment we deserve for every hidden thing, good and evil, in our lives. And he rose again, breaking the power of those evil hidden things in our lives to bind us and hold us back. He rose again, saying that we can trust him to give us that better life. If that's not your situation, then deal with it today. Remember that breath on the platform on the train station, how temporary it is? That's us. Your life is short, and then we die. And then we stand before God to do business with him one last time. So before then, live a life worth living. Fear God, rejoice in his son who bore the judgment we deserved, who defeated death on the cross, and offers life to everyone who says, I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. So friends, will you entrust yourself to Jesus today while you still can? Let me pray with you. Lord, we give you thanks for this book of wisdom from Solomon that many, many years after he wrote it, we can still hear from it today. And he offers those two very clear ways of choosing to live in this world. We can grind it out on our own. We can choose to work hard and accomplish and achieve. I think we've we carve something out in this world, only to see it crumble and be forgotten very soon after we're gone. On the other hand, you give us something that will not crumble, something that will not fade, as we read something that's imperishable, that's held for us in trust in heaven for eternity, and that's life with Jesus. So we ask that each day here on this earth you help us walk with him, you give us the strength to follow our Saviour, to listen to his commands, to do the things he calls us to do, to be obedient all the way through to the very end. Ecclesiastes shows us this world is a harsh, awful place without Christ. It's difficult to do anything on our own. But you've saved us from that. You've shown us a better way through Christ. So we ask that you direct us, guide us, keep calling us in the right direction, so that way we can keep walking with you and do that until you call us home. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.